A 2008 Harris Nationwide survey found that only 27% of Americans attend church weekly, 47% of Americans believe in evolution, but 71% of Americans believe in angels. And in fact, 71% of Americans believe that Jesus is the Son of God. A 2008 Harris Online poll asked U.S. adults about their top ten favorite books. The Bible came in number one. That's good. But uh, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code was ranked sixth. And his newest book, Angels and Demons, was ranked eighth. Americans, quite frankly, are fascinated with the subject of angels, with the spirit world. They believe in the spirit world. 71% of Americans believe in angels. They read, watch shows about the spirit world. The author of Hebrews addresses this topic of angels in the very first chapter of Hebrews as we pick up our study this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, we're looking at verses 5 through 12. The message of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses, well, actually 5 through 14, excuse me. The the message of this first chapter is that Jesus is greater than the angels who are sent to serve. They are servants. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll pick up with verses 4 and 5. We left off with verse 4 last Sunday. Having become, that is the Son, Jesus, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now drop down to the end of the chapter, verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 1. Because we, we pick up here, it's, it's really like bookends on the chapter. This is his point on the beginning and the end. But to which of the angels has he ever said? You see, he picks up with his theme. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. God is saying that Jesus is better than the angels. He is the Son and he is the Sovereign Lord. Are they not all, verse 14, are they not all, that is, angels, ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, in between those two bookends on this section, we have an extended comparison of Jesus Christ to the angels, because the first century world was also fascinated with angels. Angels... Hebrews tells us, are ministering spirits. They are servants. They are commissioned to serve those who inherit salvation. We are the ones who inherit salvation. Angels were not created in the image of God, and angels do not inherit salvation. Angels exist to serve our needs at the command of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We live in a space-time world, but the spirit world exists coextensively right along with us. The angels function all around us in that other dimension that we rarely see. But the spirit dimension is very real nonetheless. And every once in a while... God pulls back the curtain and we get a glimpse 
of that other dimension, that spirit dimension where the angels function all around us. We don't, however, most of the time, we don't see how the angels act to serve us, to protect us, to to carry out God's commands for you and for me. We don't see that. That happens unseen all around us. Now, the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater than the angels for four reasons in this passage. And we go now and look at that comparison that he draws. Jesus is greater than the angels, first of all, because Jesus is the Son of God. It's such a simple statement that we often make. It, in fact, if you, if you go to church all the time, the, if I say Jesus is the Son of God, that seems like, a, well, yeah, okay. Don't we all believe that? Of course He's the Son of God. But that is a profound statement, and it is a statement that, that develops a great deal of controversy today. Just the simple statement that Jesus is the Son of God is a theological affirmation that has great depth. So much depth that I guarantee you don't understand it and neither do I. Not fully, certainly. Verse 5 we pick up. For to which of the angels did he ever say? So he's given a greater name. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Now, the words are a quotation from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And the words are from God to the anointed one in Psalm 2, the Messiah. So God is speaking here and telling the Messiah that God has begotten him today as his son. In verse 4, we saw that Jesus was given a greater name than the angels. That name is the Son of God. Now, angels in the Old Testament are sometimes called, actually often called, sons of God. But no angel is ever given the name, the Son of God. God says that you are my only begotten son. And I will be a father to you, and you will be a son to me. The two have a father-son relationship. Now that raises all kinds of questions for people. In what sense did God beget? Give birth to or bring forth a son? When did today happen? Because he says, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. In other words, was there a point in time when God brought forth a son? And what exactly does that mean? These are mysteries hard to understand, but they are vital to Christianity. They are vital to our faith. We know that God has a son. What does that mean? Now, The Islamic world, for example, considers that blasphemous. You don't say, God has a son. That's blasphemy. It's shirk. It's the unpardonable sin in the Islamic world. You don't ever go to paradise. The one thing you can't do is ascribe to God a companion or a son if you want to go to paradise in Islamic theology. 
Now, they think of sonship, and sometimes I think the average person does as well, in literal and very human terms. In fact, there are a lot of, they think of it in terms of a lot of sexual connotations, God marrying, giving birth to a son, and it's obnoxious. But that's not what the Bible is talking about, is it? When it says that Jesus is the Son of God. The sonship of Christ is a doctrine by way of analogy. So let me start by explaining that analogy. First, theologically, sonship refers to position, not procreation. The begetting here is not begetting in the sense of human procreation. It is begetting in the sense of bringing him forth, presenting him in the position of a son. It has nothing to do with giving birth to a son and everything to do with presenting him in the position of son. Second, sonship refers to incarnation, not creation or initiation. This is not about creating Jesus as the Son of God. The doctrine of sonship has a lot to do with God taking on human flesh at the birth of Christ. That's why the virgin birth is such a vital Christian doctrine. God enters this world through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And in that sense, he takes on the position of son. Third, sonship refers to resurrection, not origination. It's not about the son being originated. It's about his resurrection. The second person of the Godhead existed from eternity past. But he was announced or declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection. Therefore, the sonship of Christ has little to do with a literal birth and everything to do with his role with respect to the space-time world in which we live. To put it another way, the second person of the Godhead always existed. But he functions as the Son of God and is declared to be the Son of God primarily through two events we celebrate as Christmas and as Easter, through his incarnation and his resurrection. And that's a very important doctrine to understand as Christians. When the angel Gabriel announced the coming birth to Mary, he told Mary that she would bear a son and he will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. That will be his name. In other words, by virtue of the virgin birth, he will be called the Son of God. At his baptism, God announces to Jesus, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I am delighted. So, the incarnation, the incarnation being God becoming flesh, is the focal point, one focal point for the sonship. The resurrection is the other point where sonship is emphasized, and this is probably the point of the verse in Hebrews. The Apostle Paul tells us in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. When is he applying that passage to Jesus? At his resurrection is the today you have begotten me. 
That's the point of Paul in Acts 13.33. The resurrection of Jesus was the begetting of Jesus as the Son of God. And this psalm was understood as pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, not his, his beginning, his creation, his origination. He always existed. God, the second person of the Trinity, always existed in eternity past. Paul also makes this very clear in Romans 1, 3, and 4, where he writes, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power, when? Resurrection. By the resurrection from the dead. He was born of a descendant of David, yes, according to the flesh, but he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, you were not a son just because you were born into a family. You were not a son by simple natural birth. At some point in time, you would be declared to be the son. It was a position of honor or rank. In fact, non-blood-related children could be declared as sons in the Greco-Roman world and often were. So, too, with Jesus. He does not begin to exist at this point as God. He always was God and is God and always will be God. But he is declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection. So, Because of his incarnation into this world at Christmas, and because of his resurrection to new life from the dead at Easter, he is the Son of God. That's the point of sonship. All right, that's some pretty heavy theology, and it's much debated today. And if you are dealing with anyone from the Islamic culture, this is a major topic of conversation. And you had better understand what the Bible teaches. And that's why I've labored the point this morning. Jesus is the Son of God is a huge theological affirmation to make. It does not refer to origination or creation. It refers to his position by virtue of the incarnation and the resurrection. All right. The today, today, by the way, I think in Hebrews he's using it like Paul does in Acts 13.33. Today would be the resurrection day when he becomes. He is the begotten Son of God at that point. Second principle then, Jesus is the Lord of the angels, verses 6 and 7. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who makes his angels winds and his his ministers a flame of fire? Once again, we, we, we really face some important theological issues here. Huge issues for our faith and for our debate with our culture and this world. What does it mean to be firstborn to the firstborn brings the firstborn into this what does that mean okay the word does not refer to a physical order of birth that is very important to understand as christians it is a position of firstborn that is the point of the author once again in the ancient world the firstborn was 
a position of preeminence in the family. It didn't necessarily mean the person born first. Isaac made Jacob his firstborn son, even though Esau was born first. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead, even though Jesus is not the first one chronologically to be raised from the dead. But he is the preeminent one raised from the dead. It is position that is involved here. He was and is the firstborn in order of priority, importance, and position. So, firstborn again is not a title based upon chronology. It is a title based upon priority or preeminence. It's not an order of physical birth. It's a position. Now, the other thing we run into in this verse is the word again which is confusing. It can be translated in two ways. It can be translated, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, or it can be translated, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world. Where you place the again in the Greek sentence makes a world of difference in how you understand this verse. Some say it should be, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, meaning... He's referring to his second entrance into this world, which is the return of Christ, which we're still waiting for. So when he again brings his son into the world, brought him in once, he again brings him into this world, we're talking about the second coming of Christ, and that's when the angels will worship him. I suggest to you it is the second one. And that is that the again is simply a marker in the text for his second point in his argument. And again, because back in verse 5 he said, and again. Now he says, and again. It's simply his marker for now I'm to my second point. You know, this is point number two. When he brings the firstborn into the world, and I believe it's a reference to Christmas, when he brings the firstborn into this world, The angels, he tells the angels to worship him. At the birth of Christ, then, when God brought, and the word could mean led, if you will, his son into this world, because remember, he already exists, right? He's just entering this world in human flesh. When he led his son into this world through the birth of Jesus in the stable at Bethlehem, then God called all of the angels to worship him, proving that Jesus is greater than the angels. So at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, the angels worship Jesus. Now the word for worship means to fall down prostrate before him. We're told that the angels were created by God to be aids or assistants to God. They are flames of fire serving God as his assistants. These angels were created to worship and serve God. So, If God calls them to worship Jesus as a baby in the manger, then that tells us something very important about baby Jesus. The angels only worship God. If they worship Jesus, then the baby in the manger is fully God, even though a baby. This is basic to our faith, isn't it? 
and yet much debated today. It is the mystery of the Incarnation. Now, I don't for a minute fully understand that mystery, do you? If you do, you can come up here and preach from now on. <laughs> I don't understand that mystery. How God can become flesh. How God can enter this world as a baby. I don't know, but he did. And the angels worshipped him as a baby in the manger. Christmas is the birth of God into this world. So, he is far greater than any of the angels. People today think how powerful they are. They worshipped him when he was a baby in Bethlehem. Rabbi Zacharias in questions I would like to ask God, writes about the uh, quote by talk show host Larry King. Larry King was asked uh, a question on his show once. He was asked, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Who would you like to interview Larry King? Now he's interviewed lots of people, right? Larry King's answer was that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. And when the questioner followed up with, and what would you like to ask him? Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. I'd like to know if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question, Larry King said, would define history for me. He's right. The the answer to that question, he says, would define history for me. Rabbi Zacharias then writes that when he requested permission to quote Larry King in his book, Larry King sent words saying, and tell him I was not being facetious. He was dead serious about that question. Were you virgin born? Because if you are, you're not man. <laughs> See, It changes everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. He is God. He was God before, and He is now God in baby form. Because He is virgin born. That is a critical theological question to ask. Jesus is the Son of God then, and Jesus is the Lord of the angels, for they worshipped Him when He was a baby in the manger, let alone if He came His second coming, they're certainly going to worship Him. And if all the angels worship him as a baby, then Jesus is God in human form. He's their Lord, and he's their master. Third, Jesus is the ruler of all. Verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions." Now, the author of Hebrews says that God directly addressed his son as, O God. That's a form of direct address. The quotation comes from Psalm 45, which is, again, a messianic psalm. In its original context, Psalm 45 is speaking to a human king at his wedding ceremony. But it's shocking to see the the king addressed as, O God. The author of Hebrews sees this expression as a statement addressed not just to an Old Testament king, but to the Messiah, the Anointed One, 
who is called God by God here. Because God is speaking and he says, Oh God, to the Son. This, friends, is probably, I think, one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture about the deity of Jesus Christ. If God calls the Son God, then he's fully God. So we've seen this progression then in his argument that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Son of God was worshipped by the angels as God. Now God himself calls the Son God. He doesn't just call him a God, but God addresses his Son as, Oh God, like I might address you by your first name. Hey Dave, Oh God, it's a direct address. The quotation then continues from Psalm 45 and we read that God, your God, anointed you. So God calls the Son God, anoints Him, but the Son views God as His God. How can God call the Son God and the Son call God God and yet there's only one God? Did you follow that? (laughs) Hebrews jumps right in. Heavy. How can that be? How can there only be one God And yet, God calls the Son God, and the Son calls God God. How can that be? Unless Father and Son are one. And now, we're at the Trinity, aren't we? We don't have the third person here. We don't have the Holy Spirit involved in this passage. But we certainly have two. We certainly have two. Both are equally God and can be addressed as God even by each other. But both are also different persons who have a distinction from one another. Do you understand that? I don't. Not fully. I believe it, but I don't understand it. Why? Because God's way above me. You see, God is one God. There is only one God, but God is also three persons who are one in essential being. The truth is that if we can understand God fully, then he's not God worth worshipping, is he, ultimately? God, the true God, is so far above, so far beyond our limited human understanding, we will never grasp fully grasp his reality, though we believe it. We understand the principles. We cannot fathom the depth of that relationship, that arrangement. We believe God to be one in essence, three in persons. We wrestle with that doctrine. We'll never fully understand it. Shortly after St. Augustine had finished his theological work on the Trinity, he was walking along the Mediterranean shore one day on the coast of North Africa, when he chanced upon a boy who was taking the the water out of the Mediterranean Sea and he was going and he was pouring it into a hole that he dug in the sand on the seashore. And Augustine said to the little boy, why are you doing that? I'm pouring the Mediterranean Sea into the hole, the little boy said. My dear boy, said Augustine, What an impossible thing to try to do. The sea is far too vast, and your hole is far too small. And then he went on his way, walking. And as he walked, 
he was thinking about the triunity of God. And it dawned on him that he was doing the same thing. He was much like that boy, for the subject was far too vast, and his mind was far too small. Fourth, Jesus is the ruler of all. His throne is over all, and Jesus is the everlasting creator. Verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning, is talking again to Jesus, Thou, Lord, sovereign, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they, will, they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. The late Carl Sagan narrated a video called Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. The video begins with images of space combined with beautiful music and opens on what is called the shores of a cosmic ocean. Standing on a cliff with the waves of the sea crashing below him, the camera zooms in from outer space on the figure of Carl Sagan walking on the top of that cliff. And he says in words that have become quite famous, by the way, you can YouTube this if you want to watch it. He says in these words, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And that's how he opens the movie. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And he goes on to say, The cosmos is also within us. We are made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. Profound. And this atheist is making theological statements. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. The cosmos is God. We're part of it. But notice what Hebrews says. Jesus founded this earth, and all the works of heaven above, all the works of earth beneath, are the works of Jesus' hands. They do not last forever, and they had a beginning. The cosmos is not all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. All of this star stuff going to be gone one day. It'll perish. It'll be destroyed, he says in this verse. Jesus will roll up the cosmos like a cloak, like a shawl, like a robe, or a blanket. He will change it all by the power of his word. But Jesus does not change. Got that? He is the everlasting creator. And long after this creation has been rolled up like a blanket and replaced with a new cosmos, Jesus will live on as the Lord of all creation. In 1958, a U.S. soldier wandered the streets of Berlin to see the sights. As he's walking through the streets of Berlin and the bustling life, the parts of the city still had reminders of the destruction from World War II. 
And walking through a residential area one evening across the cobblestone street, he saw an open space edged with lots of flowers and uh, trees and shrubbery and that sort of thing. And in the, st- in the center of this open space stood the stone front of what had once been a church, a cathedral. The building, though, was no longer there. But the rubble had been cleared away in an attempt to fill the empty space with a little park. And the former church's main door was shaped in a large Gothic arch, stone arch. And over it was carved into the stone in German these words, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And as he stepped through the arch where the doors had once been, been. Of course, he wasn't inside anything at all. It was open to the sky above, for there was no building. It had been reduced to a patch of pavement and open sky. Jesus is the door to eternity, is he not? He lives forever. And as we step into Christ, we enter into his unshakable, eternal presence. Heaven and earth will pass away. It's all going up in smoke someday. But I live forever. All this stuff is passing away, but not Jesus. He is Lord of the angels. He is Lord of the cosmos. Now what does that tell us as humans? If all this stuff we consider so important is passing away, how should we live in light of that reality? If Jesus is Lord of the cosmos, all the star stuff is in his hands. Then our only hope is to know Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Ninety Hammond is the executive director for the Southeast Outlook in Louisville, Kentucky. But in 1988, she worked as a reporter for a small newspaper in Lebanon, Kentucky. On May 14th of that year, 1988, newspapers throughout the country carried the story of the bus crash where 24 children and three adults died in what was called the worst drunken driver accident in Kentucky history. 24 children, three adults all died in that. The bus carried the youth group of the First Assembly of God Church in Radcliffe, Kentucky. Church youth group on an outing. Though Niney did not cover the story, many of her friends were reporters in that county where the children were from, and they covered the story in detail. And witnesses who survived the crash told of one particular passenger, Chuck Kaida, the youth minister, youth leader of the church. Chuck was seated in the very front of the bus behind the driver when the drunken driver hit the bus and the gas tank exploded. He was a heartbeat away from that collision. And when the, when the, when the gas tank exploded, he was immediately enveloped in flames. And when Chuck saw the flames around him, witnesses, many of them said, he looked up, lifted his hands and cried out, Jesus, I'm coming home! Jesus, I'm coming home. And he had a smile on his face, the kids said. Niney wrote, 
I was not a Christian in 1988. So I couldn't make any sense of what Chuck did. Here's this guy, so cool, a bunch of kids called him Banana, standing in flames, moments from a horrible death, and he's smiling, and he says, Jesus, I'm coming home! No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't wrap her head around that. And she couldn't erase that image her reporter friends had told her about. Niney wrote, the only way to explain how a man could calmly accept almost welcome a painful death was to acknowledge that he understood some great truth that I didn't, that he had something, faith, hope, God maybe, something I didn't have, and try as I might, I couldn't help yearning for whatever he had that made death a thing to embrace rather than to fear. Two years later, Niney would come to Christ, and now she understood And she says, Chuck Kaida planted a seed in me that took root in my heart. One day I will see Chuck in heaven, and I'll tell him how the manner of his death pointed me toward eternal life. That's Jesus. Father, thank you for your son. He is Lord, and we worship him this morning. Lord Jesus, by your grace... We're glad you give us eternal life, life that outlasts this cosmos, for we are in you and we will worship you forever. In your name, amen. Hymn number 